Com. International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> This episode was first broadcast in 2014. Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Leonard Lipovich explains non-coding RNA. It's not junk after all. But first up, here's the news. Take my hand. Researchers at Washington University have developed a brain-to-machine-to-brain interface that allows someone to take control of your hand to help you play a computer game. Fine motor control is very hard to communicate to someone using just words or images, so training surgeons and violinists can be very hard. If you could get them to actually feel what it's like to move their hands in exactly the right way, it should make it much quicker for them to master the techniques themselves. In the experimental setup, one person could see the game but had no controller, just an electroencephalographic EEG electrode helmet sitting on their head to read their brainwaves as they visualised moving their hand. This is the sender. In another building a mile away, the second person couldn't see the game, but did have the controller and was sitting under a giant magnet that could be moved by a robot to induce a current in the motor cortex of their brain in order to involuntarily move their hand, because they were the receiver. The robot with the giant magnet is providing transcranial magnetic stimulation. In between the people is a computer system that translates the intentions of the sender from electrical signals in their brain into instructions to the robot to move the magnet to induce electrical signals that reproduce that intention to move the receiver's hand to operate a touchpad. From brain to computer to magnet to brain to hand. An earlier experiment had the sender move a rat's tail. And then another experiment used transcranial magnetic stimulation to create flashes of light in the receiver's brain instead of moving their wrist. In this experiment, two people are cooperating to play a game of shooting rockets with a cannon to defend a city from pirates. Not only did they have to time their shot to stop the rocket hitting the city, but they had to avoid accidentally firing at a friendly supply plane that flew the same path as the rockets. The time between the sender's intention and the receiver's hand moving without their control was a fraction of a second. Pairs of players were successful in clicking at the right time to hit the target anywhere from 25 to 83% of the time. It depended on the pair playing. The sender learned by practicing moving a cursor on a screen as they visualized their own hands moving. The receiver had the exact location of the motor area of their brain that would move the wrist of one hand mapped by stimulating a dot every centimetre in the general region 
until their wrist, the extensor carpi radialis, moved up and then fell down again. This up and down movement would later be enough for the touchpad to register a fire command. During the experiment, the receiver faced a blank wall while wearing a noise-cancelling headphone set, playing the music or audiobook of their choice. There's no telepathy, but I can imagine Stellark having a field day. Stellark is an Australian transhuman artist who wired up his muscles to a touchscreen interface and let the audience remote control his body over the internet. The brain-to-brain interface could be an amazing learning tool and it might also contribute to rehabilitation of people with injuries. The research is partly funded by the US Army Research Office. The paper was published in PLOS One from the Public Library of Science and was titled A Direct Brain-to-Brain Interface in Humans. Leonard Lipovich is an associate professor with tenure at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan, at the Center for Molecular Medicine and Genetics. He's a co-investigator of the ENCODE Consortium, the encyclopedia of DNA elements that's one of the successes to the original Human Genome Project. I met Leonard at a talk he gave for Biohack Sydney. We later went to a meeting room at the University of New South Wales, and I began by asking him to tell me about ENCODE. Hey Ian, it's a great pleasure to have a chance to talk about ENCODE with you and your wonderful and lovely audience. So ENCODE stands for Encyclopedia of DNA Elements. So a little background on that. Back in 2001, the Human Genome Project, or the HGP, produced the first ever draft human genome sequence. And this was published in February 2001 in two concurrent parallel papers, one in the journal Nature by the U.S. public consortium led by Francis Collins and colleagues, and one in the journal Science by J. Craig Venter and Mark Adams and colleagues working for Celera Genomics, of course, which was the private consortium. And then two years later, in 2003, it was officially declared that the Human Genome Project is or projects are complete, and a reference human genome sequence was made freely and publicly available. However, the biggest take-home message of those heady early years of human genomics was that we actually do not understand 98.5% of the genome. We had the sequence, it is approximately 3.3 billion bases long, and it became apparent after those papers were published and people began to analyze the data that less than 2% of the sequence has anything to do with protein coding sequences, protein coding genes. Now, it was traditionally thought for many decades in molecular biology, based on this idea called the central dogma of molecular biology, that DNA is where the information resides. RNA, or ribonucleic acid, which is copied off the DNA, is merely a messenger. It's a, it's a benign intermediary in the information flow. And then protein is the important final deliverable. So what, what became apparent is that for many RNAs, ribonucleic acid molecules transcribed off the genomic DNA, those RNAs actually have standalone roles in the cell, very strange and interesting new roles. And those RNAs do not get translated into protein. And that's really what genomics has been up to in the last decade. And this will lead us closer to a conversation about ENCODE. 
So this used to be called junk DNA. This is all the, the genes that don't encode for proteins. And it turns out they do a lot of other things. And so ENCODE is looking at all of that. That's precisely right, Ian. So traditionally in the dark ages, I'm of course joking of the central dogma, when the central dogma ruled molecular biology, it was thought that if a piece of DNA does not encode a protein, then it's probably not even a gene and therefore it's junk. What we've realized in the past 10 years is uh, two things. First of all, most DNA is actually transcribed. There are probably three times as many genes as we thought there are. They counted 20,000 genes uh, in 2003, and our current count, I'm probably running ahead of myself, is at 60,000. So what was formerly thought to be junk DNA yields a lot of RNA, and this RNA has a variety of important, including essential roles in the cell, organism, development, and disease. This RNA has also led us to some surprising revelations about evolution. The many roles that RNA plays in the human genome. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Oh, absolutely. And, and that's a great guiding question. Thank you. So non-coding RNA, defined as RNA that acts as RNA and does not get translated by ribosomes into protein, has actually always been known. Even in the pre-genomic era in the 20th century, we've known for decades, for example, that you can't have life as you know it without non-coding RNA. Transfer RNA that carries uh, charged amino acids, amino acid moieties to the sites of peptide synthesis, ribosomal RNA, ribosome, which is the, what makes proteins in the cell is made of proteins and RNA. So there are a lot of non-coding RNAs, small nuclear RNA, which is essential for gene splicing, something that uh, Phil Sharp got a Nobel Prize for back in the 70s. That's a non-coding RNA. So we've always known that certain kinds of non-coding RNA are basically essential for life as we know it. But what we didn't know is that there is so many more species, kinds, types of non-coding RNA encoded by the cell. And that for most of those newly discovered types, we actually until very recently had no idea what they do. And so what are some of the things they do in the body? And that's a great question. I will provide a spatiotemporal summary, I suppose. Non-coding RNA has emerged in this first post-genomic decade as a central regulator of gene expression. It's both a positive regulator, it turns genes on, and a negative regulator, it turns genes off. Non-coding RNA works in the cell nucleus, where it can bind DNA and proteins, referred to as chromatin, which is basically how the genome is packed in, in the cell, and it governs gene expression. It's also present in the cytoplasm of the cell, where it binds proteins that do essential things, like, for example, point a cancer cell towards cell death, or point a cancer cell toward proliferation and metastasis. DNA-binding proteins, such as transcription factors, the fundamental molecular switches that turn genes on and off recently have been revealed to moonlight as RNA binding proteins. They bind RNAs that modulate and in some cases turn on and off their activities. So in the network, RNA is a high level switch. And then potentially the most interesting thing, the craziest thing perhaps in the field is the discovery that extracellular RNA, RNA that exists in the body but outside the cell, is abundant and it may not just be a marker. People used to think, well, when cells die in the body, they release uh, RNA and proteins into the blood and that does not carry any significance. It might be a biomarker for a disease once the disease has already progressed, but it couldn't be much more than that. But if you think about evolution, 
um, in plants and also in worms and C. elegans, you have circulating RNA that's exchanged between cells and is used as a signaling mechanism between faraway cells. So we are beginning to think without much hard evidence at the moment, although we're working on it, that similar cell-to-cell -cell signaling mediated by exosomal RNA in the blood, protected from degradation by enzymes, may even be taking place in humans. So there could be a giant network of communication between all the cells in the body using RNA as the medium. That's precisely one of the more uh, emerging hypotheses in the fields. And I underscore that for humans, in fact, for all mammals, this is merely and barely a hypothesis. However, we think, based on data that other labs have published, and I will be happy to send you some links to those papers afterwards, it has been shown, for example, that human cancer cells secrete vesicles that contain specific non-causing RNAs and then when other cells that are not proliferating encounter those vesicles, they may turn on a pro-cancer transcriptional program. So that RNA is carrying information from cell to cell in, the, in a disease. So we've gone from the role of RNA in humans directly to disease. So RNA, what happens? What's the role with human disease? And that's a great question as well. So let me first answer it quantitatively. So back 10 years ago when the HGP, the Human Genome Project, finished up, we thought we had 20,000 genes. Now, so the ENCODE Consortium has a website, gencodegenes.org, where we publicize our official human gene count. We're at 60,000. So 40,000 of those genes are non-coding RNA genes, 20,000 are coding. So RNA has become a very hot topic in human disease. What do we know now? There is a lot of evidence from uh, two different lines of work. One line of work is actually functional work. When you study an inherited disease in human beings, in families, or in populations, and you use traditional conventional genomic methods to figure out which region of the genome and then which gene is actually causing the disease. In the past 10 years, more and more of these studies have been actually finding out that a specific non-causing RNA gene is the candidate gene. I'll give one brief but dramatic example. Probably the first successful study of this type. In 2006, Ishii et al. Uh, and colleagues, and uh, I can send the reference afterwards, were working on uh, myocardial infarction in the Japanese population, and they just studied polymorphisms, differences between people. So, for example, you have a C and I have a G, so some of us are CC, some of us are GG, and some of us are CG at a specific site. What if those differences called SNPs, single nucleated polymorphisms, are actually correlated significantly statistically with susceptibility to disease. So Japanese scientists in 06 found a specific region of the human genome that highly correlated with susceptibility to myocardial infarction. And they were very annoyed, I think, when they found out that there were no protein coding genes in the region, none. But they thought, well, the region is significantly associated with the disease. No other region is this highly associated. So we will have to look for RNA that's transcribed from this region, even if it's not protein coding. They used very old school laborious methods, northern blots for the molecular biology aficionados in the audience, to isolate and then clone and characterize these RNAs. And now we know that MIAT, myocardial infarction associated transcript, is a long non-coding RNA that basically contributes to causing heart disease, one of many others that have been more recently discovered. The other line of evidence comes purely from statistical work without direct molecular tools. So for example, and I'll run ahead of myself, I collaborate with the CHARGE Consortium Cohorts for Heart and Aging Research in Genomic Epidemiology. And there we are looking at these SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms across 
tens of thousands or even more uh, patients and controls. And we're finding genomic regions that contain long non-causing RNA genes, just like MIAT, but other ones that may be causing other diseases such as type 2 diabetes. But a lot of work is still ahead to prove in the organismal uh, context and at the cellular level that those RNAs do not merely correlate and that they cause the disease. So that is still very new and emerging work. That was Jonathan Coulton with DNA. And all of this information is up in publicly available databases. Uh, that's actually true to some extent, and to some extent it, it's not. So I, let me uh, f- tell our audience what is actually available in case folks want to go out on their own and explore the data. So I would not start with the Cherish Consortium because A, that is still very emerging, and B, a lot of patient data, especially in the US, is, is protected by federal law, and uh, it would need to be somebody would need to obtain a permit through a process call or a database called DBGAP. And that's usually quite complex, both for individuals and incredible for institutions. So let me talk about what is available. First of all, the human genome sequence and more than 2,000 types of wet lab-driven, experiment-driven annotation is available for free online at the UCSC Genome Browser and the UCSC Genome Database, genome.ucsc.edu. And that's like the number one link that we will distribute afterwards. One of the 2,000 types of annotation is actually GWAS, Genome-Wide association studies. And there is a track in the UCSC browser that only shows SNPs, polymorphisms, that are significantly linked to a disease, as opposed to just showing all SNPs, of which there are so many. So anybody can do simple computational analysis overlapping those disease-associated SNPs with other types of data, such as the 40,000 non-coding RNA genes that the GenCode track part of ENCODE Consortium's contribution to the UCSC browser also makes available. So any programmer can actually use the genome database or the table browser to create these overlaps and find SNPs in LNCRNA genes. And of course, we have done that as well, and we are pursuing many of those leads. DNA, 
on that database, there's something called a blat. What's that? The, the, that's another great question. So the database c- can be queried. Many of the bioinformatics aficionados on the broadcast will doubtless uh, know about BLAST, basic local alignment search tool. And that was uh, back in the pre-genomic as well as post-genomic era, a very important, still is a very important tool where, for example, if you isolate a sequence from your patient, from your experiment, from a cell or tissue or organism you are analyzing, and you want to understand the sequence, what is it similar to that's already in the databases? Is it an RNA? Is it protein coding? What does it do? How old is it? in terms of evolutionary time, you can check that sequence against the database. Now, Jim Kent, the fantastic and charismatic character whom I hope you will all get to meet or at least to see via video online at some point, Jim Kent invented BLAT, which stands for Blessed-like alignment tool. BLAST takes a sequence and shows you sequence similarity in any of a number of databases being maintained. BLAT takes a DNA or protein sequence and shows you similarity in the human genome or any of the other genomes available in UCSC. So it's a very rapid mapping tool that will allow you to see your sequence within the context of DNA, RNA, protein, the 2000 approximately experiments that ENCODE has done and open up a screen where you can do in-depth manual annotation on the sequence. So it's both a mapping tool and a genome-driven rather than database-driven similarity tool. You showed at the biohack meeting that you can get a disease and get a, a sequence there and match it up to the human genome to see which parts are attacking humans? Uh, well, um, so what you said was true, except potentially the last part about attacking humans, or, or the, which is all right, or the specific cause of the disease. So one of the interesting applications of, of tools like BLAT is that you don't have to only work within humans. You can investigate cross-species similarity. Now, uh, what we talked a little bit about at Biohack are uh, viral diseases, and specifically viruses that have RNA genomes. And there are many important viruses in public health, including, but certainly, certainly not limited to HIV, hepatitis viruses, so HCV, and much in the news now Ebola that just happen to have RNA genomes. Now, there is a lot of interesting information out there in the public domain, or at least in the published domain, which you can access through Medline at pubmed.gov about what I call viral host interactions. And I will qualify that I'm making this comment very colloquially because my lab actually does not work in the field at all. However, it is very true that because RNA is just a nucleic acid and it can hybridize to other RNA and form what's called a sense-antisense RNA-RNA duplex, or it can even hybridize to DNA. So RNA-DNA interactions, in fact, are a very hot topic in the RNA biology field right now. It has been shown that some viruses bind host RNAs. For example, hepatitis C virus has an RNA, its own genomic RNA, that seems to bind one specific kind of microRNA, endogenous microRNA in the human liver, and that helps disease progression. So there is a company in Denmark now called Santaris. I do not participate in that research and have absolutely no relationship with that company, by the way, so there is no conflict of interest. And that company is designing a drug that's instead of trying to hit the virus, is trying to take the human microRNA out of the system so that the viral RNA has nothing to bind to. So back to BLAT, one potentially interesting but yet unproven application of BLAT is that in in theory, you could start with a viral genome or a part of a viral genome and search that against the human genome to figure out which human gene transcripts, if 
any at all, the viral RNA is likely to bind. And then, of course, you could test for binding in the wet lab in controlled conditions. And if there is something to the story, potentially there is more therapeutics coming out that way. That was Leonard Lipovich from Wayne State University, talking about non-coding RNA and the encyclopedia of DNA elements. Listen next week for part two of the interview, when Leonard tells us about his work on uniquely primate RNA. You can find ENCODE at ENCODEproject.org and the cohorts for heart and ageing research in genetic epidemiology at chargeconsortium.com. The University of California Santa Cruz's Genome Browser is at genome.ucsc.edu. We start the story when mom met dad and they danced on Someone convenient to blame You can take your pick, it's one or the other That was Jonathan Coulton singing That Spells DNA. You can hear more from Jonathan Coulton at jonathancoulton.com. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including two Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai, two NVR in Nambuka Valley, two XX in Canberra, and three MBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the astronomy.fm internet radio station. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for videos and links about this week's show. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.